Our scripture today is from Ezekiel 13. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among the ruins, O Israel. And you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own hearts. Prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the women who sew sew magic bands upon all wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature in the hunt for souls. Will you hunt down souls belonging to my people and keep your own souls alive? You have profaned me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, putting to death souls who should not die and keeping alive souls who should not live. By your lying to my people, who listen to lies. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic bands with which you hunt the souls like birds, and I will tear them from your arms, and I will let the souls whom you hunt go free, the souls like birds. Your veils also I will tear off and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall be no more in your hand as prey, and you shall know that I am the Lord." Because you have disheartened the righteous falsely, although I have not grieved him, and you have encouraged the wicked, that he should not turn from his evil ways to save his life, therefore you shall no more see false visions nor practice divination. I will deliver my people out of your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord." Did you know that if you were to go to the Empire State Building and go up to the top and take a penny and drop it and it were to hit someone on the sidewalk down below, it would kill him? Did you know that if you were to take a ride in a rocket ship and look down, you could see the Great Wall of China? Did you know that mice really like cheese? Well, these are examples of fake news that people believe. Uh, By the way, if you were to drop a penny from the Empire State Building, pennies are not very aerodynamic. You know, they turn this way and that, and they are subject to the wind blowing them around. And um, by the time they got to the bottom, you know, there's air resistance as well as the velocity there. So it's, uh, the velocity is neutralized by the resistance of the air and it really wouldn't hurt anybody. But these are things that we have heard and believed among ourselves for, for quite some time. Same is true with the Great Wall of China. You cannot see the Great Wall of China from outer space. And contrary to popular opinion, Mice really are not all that fond of cheese. I don't know what they like, uh, but the experts at Google say that mice don't really like cheese. Now, you can believe these corrected reports about fake news that people believe because I read about it on Facebook. Um, By the way, Facebook is reportedly the biggest source of fake news in the world today, and I know that because I read it on the internet. (laughs) 
so you know it has to be true. So these days, we, we don't know what to believe and what not to believe. We don't know if the media is feeding us real news or fake news. And unfortunately, we can't always be sure we will hear genuinely good news at church. There's a very real possibility that you will hear fake news at some churches. Now, the message being preached in some of the largest churches in the world is not the gospel of Christ. Instead, a different gospel is being preached to many congregations today. The message uh, has been ascribed by many names, such as name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, confess it and possess the gospel. It is perhaps best known as the health wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel or the Word of Faith movement. Now, do people really believe the, the fake good news that Jesus died on the cross so that you can have an easy life, provided you push the right buttons? <clears throat> yes, people do believe that. Uh, to determine just how widespread the Health Wealth Gospel is the Pew Research Center on Religion and Public Life conducted a scientific study, a survey of Americans who identified as Christians. And uh, the question they asked, they asked several questions, but the one that's pertinent for us today uh, was this one. Does God grant material prosperity to all believers provided they have enough faith? What percentage of the respondents do you think agreed with that statement? 46%. That's nearly half of the Christians who identify, uh, or half of all Americans who identify as Christians believe the health wealth gospel. Uh, the percentages are even higher in Africa and India. Uh, several years ago, I went to India uh, to conduct a training seminar for about 300 pastors who were there. Uh, these men had virtually no formal theological education, didn't have a whole lot of formal, any kind of education, uh, but they were uh, eager to learn, very hungry for uh, instruction. Um, but most of the, the, the people who I, I met there uh, had a, a, a different understanding of what the gospel uh, really is. Uh, when the, the train stopped and we got off, uh, it was reported to us later that there were some people saying, hey, there's some rich white Americans here. And so they gathered up the news spread and beggars from all over the city uh, came and um, circled around us, you know, looking for something um, of a material sort. Um, and those who had organized the, um, the, the seminar uh, had people stationed to pass out um, coins uh, for those who could get close enough. And then they would say, that's all we have, uh, so uh, you know, go, go on back home. It was also believed that if 
someone were to touch a quote-unquote rich white American Christian, then the blessing from that person would transfer to them and they also would become rich. Uh, I didn't know this until later, but when people came up and wanted to touch me, you know, I felt like a rock star uh, or a movie star or something, a celebrity. You know, why are people wanting to touch me? Why do they ask for me to pray for them? Uh, why would they rather be touched by my right hand than my left hand? Uh, just all kinds of things. And, um, it was apparent uh, that they, they really did believe uh, that if they were to touch me, sort of like touching the hem of a garment that Jesus wore, that somehow or another uh, they would be healed of disease or they would be uh, delivered from poverty or, or both. Um, so this is disturbing. It's why we are addressing the fake good news of a health wealth gospel along with some of the other fake good news uh, gospels that are being proliferated uh, in the world today. Um, by the way, uh, today's sermon is rated PG. Uh, I know that we've had some hot button and some um, feather ruffling ratings before, but this one is, is PG for pastoral guidance. Uh, you could also assign the title PG for Prosperity Gospel. So take your pick, you know, Prosperity Gospel or Pastoral Guidance. Either way, it's rated PG. So in approaching the, the subject today, I want to uh, raise three questions. What is the Prosperity Gospel? Why are so many people drawn to it? And how should you respond to it? Uh, first of all, what is the Prosperity Gospel? Now, the prosperity gospel is the teaching that divine physical health and prosperity are yours through faith. In short, this means the health and wealth are the automatic divine right of all Bible-believing Christians and are part of the package that comes with salvation. So the prosperity gospel preachers say that uh, not only are your sins atoned for by Jesus on the cross, uh, but also... Uh, poverty and illness are taken care of as part of the, the package deal. You just have to figure out which buttons to push in order to get that. Uh, this teaching became popular through the preaching of such personalities as Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, Frederick Casey Price, and Oral Roberts. Today, the most widely recognized prosperity gospel preachers include Kenneth Copeland, Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Benny Hinn, Paula White, and Joyce Meyer all familiar names. Now, it would appear that the fake good news of the prosperity gospel emerged about 50 or so years ago, but actually the fake good news has been around for a lot longer than that, uh, much longer, thousands of years ago. Even in the Old Testament times, false prophets would preach fake good news uh, during a tumultuous time in Israel. Uh, when Babylon was on uh, the, the heels of the people of the land of Judah, the northern kingdom of uh, Israel, as it was known, or perhaps Samaria, had already been taken captive by the Assyrians. And so the people of Judah 
uh, were nervous, uh, they were fearful, and they longed to hear some good news. Uh, we understand that, don't we? I mean, just think about how the world has changed in the last uh, year or so, or last month or so, or last week or so. Uh, here are some of the things that affect a, a lot of us. Uh, interest rates, twice what they were this time last year. The stock market um, it's crashed so many times that um, it might be declared a total loss. <laughs> Uh, stock market is now in, now officially in bear territory. Uh, price of gas more than doubled in the past year. Cost of food and raw materials has fueled an out of control rate of inflation. And on top of that, Russia has invaded Ukraine. COVID is still hanging around. Uh, Jared probably has it. So uh, we understand what it means to be hungry for good news, don't we? And uh, just to repeat, the uh, people of Judah, uh, with all of the bad news that was invading them, were starving for some good news. And so uh, false prophets rose up and told people what they wanted to hear in the name of God. So uh, for these false prophets, these purveyors of fake news gained quite a following with the people. These uh, false prophets preyed on the people for profit and proclaimed good news for their futures in God's name. I want to give you a couple of examples from the Old Testament. First, we'll go to 1 Kings chapter 22. I don't have the page number for that, uh, but if you want to look it up, uh, you, you, you may. I'm not going to read the section because it's fairly long, so I'm just going to summarize it for you. Uh, but the situation was that this is just before the time of the Babylonian captivity of the people of the land of Judah. And uh, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the uh, king of uh, Judah, the, the southern kingdom, uh, got together and they wanted to know, well, actually, uh, this is a little earlier than what I said a, a moment ago. Um, nevertheless, the point's going to be the, the, the same. Um, both of these kings wanted to hear from the prophets who were there. You know, should we go up against the Arameans or not? And so one by one, um, these prophets came up and one of them brought an object lesson. He had uh, a horn with him and he says in so many words, uh, thus you shall gore the Arameans, you know, just as I'm goring here now. And uh, all of the rest of them were saying the same thing. And then the king of Judah says to the king of uh, Israel, he said, hey, I don't know if he said hey, but in our vernacular it would have been uh, hey. Uh, is there not a prophet of God that we can hear from? So even that wicked king realized that the guys who were giving all of these favorable prophecies uh, really weren't prophets of God. You really couldn't trust what they had to say. And so Ahab, who was about as evil a king as Israel ever had, said, well, there is this one guy, Micaiah, but I hate him. Uh, he never says anything good about me, only evil. Uh, king of Judah said, well, I'd still like to hear from you. So they called for Micaiah to come. And before he goes out to see the kings, 
uh, some of the counselors among the prophets get around him and said, look, everyone else has prophesied good about what should happen in uh, the upcoming battle, if indeed there is a battle. So we want you to say the same thing so that the kings will be happy. And Micaiah says, I can only say what the Lord tells me to say. So they bring Micaiah out, and Micaiah says, in response to the question, you know, should we go up against the Arameans or not? And uh, Micaiah says, yeah, sure, go for it. Translated uh, into modern vernacular. And then the king of Judah nudges the king of Israel and says, can he not tell us what God really says? And uh, at that point, Micaiah goes on to say that if you go up against the Arameans in battle, uh, you're going to lose the battle, and Ahab, uh, you will die in that battle. And Ahab didn't like that at all. And he said, did I not tell you that he never said anything good about me? only evil. But both kings knew that, that uh, Micaiah was speaking on behalf of the Lord. Nevertheless, Ahab said to Micaiah, I'm going to lock you in jail and you're not going to get out of that until I return from battle. And Micaiah said in response to that, well, then I'll stay here forever uh, because if, I, if you return from battle, then the Lord has not spoken through me. And to make the long story shorter, they go into battle against the Arameans. Uh, they return uh, defeated, all except, well, there were a lot of people who were killed, but among those who were killed was King Ahab. So even though the message was not popular, the message was from God. I know that there are people who want to hear things that you know, kind of tickle the ears. We're warned against such things in Scripture. Tell people what they want to hear. They'll come back for more. They'll support uh, your ministry financially. Uh, these are the things that we often hear. Um, but as the prophet Micaiah said, I can only say what the Lord has given me to say. So the safest thing to do is always quote Scripture. So uh, there were a lot of prophets who wrote uh, during this time, and including Ezekiel. Uh, Grant uh, read that passage for us uh, just a, a moment ago, and there's a companion passage that goes with that from uh, Lamentations chapter 2, uh, written by Jeremiah the prophet. He says, What can I say for you? To what uh, compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you? that I may comfort you, O virgin daughters of Zion, for your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets has seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but has seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. Now today, uh, purveyors of the uh, prosperity gospel are raking it in, telling people in the name of God that you can get God to give you what you want if you push the right buttons and make a significant gift of money 
to whatever preacher you're listening to. So uh, in essence, the prosperity gospel asserts that God will reward faithful giving with financial, familial, and entrepreneurial blessings. The doctrine also tends to double down on how you can use God to accomplish whatever you set out to do. So the secret to the successful Christian life is not how to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but how to manipulate God into giving you what you want from Him. There isn't a whole lot of emphasis on the wonders and the glory that is to be revealed to us when we inherit the kingdom of God. The focus is on having your best life now. The prosperity teachers will tell you that if you make a sizable donation to their ministry, you can't make it to somebody else's ministry. <laughs> it has to be to, to their ministry. Uh, then God is pretty much obligated to bless you financially. You can't give to your church uh, or you know, anybody else. It has to be to the one who's preaching to you on TV or at a conference center or even at a church at that time. Most importantly, the doctrine tends to avoid the stickier parts of Scripture, uh, anything about judgment, sin, and needless suffering, um, that is, suffering that does not end in a blessing, or taking up your cross and following Jesus, you'll not find those things in the prosperity gospel, in their sermons or their books. So, if the prosperity gospel is so wacky, why do so many people believe in it? That's a good question. So I want to see if I can uh, provide a good answer. To but why are so many people drawn to the prosperity gospel? Uh, let's think about it for a minute. It's an attractive gospel because it promises to give you what your heart desires. In some cases, that may be a lavish lifestyle featuring palatial homes and exotic cars, but for most people, we would be happy with a healthy body, a solid marriage and family, and little money in the bank. Do you know of anybody who doesn't want that? No, I don't. And yet, uh, I want to give you a, a personal perspective. Uh, back in the 80s, uh, I was drawn into the charismatic movement um, not intentionally, it just kind of happened that way. It wasn't because I was interested in how I could get a lot of money uh, or anything like that. Uh, it's because I wanted something more. I wanted a more satisfying relationship with God. It's not that I didn't love God already, I, I did. Uh, but life as the, as the pastor of a small church in a small town in the deep south had left me spiritually dry. Worship services were generally uninspiring. Even the sermons were dry. It pains me to say that. <laughs> uh, most people, it seemed, were merely going through the motions. So was I. And I long for the days of the robust congregational singing during chapel in my Bible college days. I also yearn for the days when I first came to faith in Christ in the 70s. Everything was so much more exciting then, it seemed to be anyway. But 
Now it seemed that my spiritual vitality was about to smolder into a vapor and drift away. I begged God to take me out of the small Mississippi town where I lived and establish me where I could be around spiritually hungry people. And then one day God said, okay. Uh, he brought me to Nashville where I served a relatively new, relatively young congregation. And I immensely enjoy the multiple opportunities for evangelism and discipleship. The young church was growing rapidly, never seen anything like that before. And I was certainly happy with my new ministry, but there seemed to be a, a fresh wind of the Holy Spirit blowing, and I wanted to hoist myself to catch it. Something was happening in the worship services of some churches that was both refreshing and excited. I wanted a taste of that. So making a long story short, I connected with the leadership of a movement that was known as the Spiritual Renewal Movement. And I resonated in particular with an organization known as the Times of Refreshing from the Presence of the Lord Ministry. At first, uh, it was fresh new music and passionate prayer, but then the movement began to focus on spiritual gifts in a low-key way. And before I realized what was happening, I'd been swept up into the charismatic movement. And along with the charismatic movement came an emphasis on signs and wonders and even an acknowledgement there was something that the prosperity teachers had that we needed. And to make another long story shorter, I realized that I was no longer enjoying times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. I was drowning in a sea of bad theology and distorted teaching. And so I got out, which meant I had to leave the church I had started and find a job in the business world. And those were hard days. I discovered that even though I had a college degree, bachelor's degree, and a master's degree, and I thought I had some marketable skills. Um, I was regarded as qualified as someone who had a GED. Uh, so it was difficult in the business world. Um, I'm not sure we ever really recovered from those difficulties. We moved on, but it just wanted you to know it was really hard. And why am I telling you this? Because anyone can be deceived. I mean, even pastors can be deceived. Anyone can be led astray. And you may be led astray not so much because you are greedy or easily manipulated. You can be led astray because you're looking for satisfaction in the wrong place. Our source of satisfaction is found in God, not in the stuff you believe God can give you if you have enough faith. God is not the means by which you find satisfaction. He is satisfaction. If you have Christ, you have everything you need for satisfaction. This is what the Lord tells us 
In John 7, verses 37 and 38, Jesus says this. On the last day of the feast, well, John is telling us this, and then we'll hear Jesus quote in the middle of it. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, anyone who yearns for satisfaction will find it in Christ. Not in money, not in the stuff money can buy, in Christ. Now listen to what Paul tells us in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 10. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Well, so far in our discussion of the fake good news of the prosperity gospel, we've considered two questions. What is the prosperity gospel? And two, why are so many people drawn to it? Now three, uh, how should we respond to it? You should reject it. Why should you reject the prosperity gospel? Well, the prosperity gospel emphasizes the role of God's gifts as the source of satisfaction rather than God himself. You see, God is not the key to the treasure. He is the treasure. Truly, God is good to Israel, the psalmist says, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God, not the things that you might get from God, is the true source of satisfaction. So in addition to obscuring what the Bible says in general, prosperity gospel obscures the message of the cross in particular. According to Peter, Christ died not so that we wouldn't have to suffer, but so that we would have a model for how to suffer. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We are called to suffer in this life. 
There is no escape clause. There is no button you can push. There is no list that you can get your name on that will exempt you from suffering. I've actually had people come to me and say, how do I get my name on that list that exempts me from suffering? It's not there. We're called to endure suffering in this life so that we might become more like Christ. But you'll never hear a prosperity gospel preacher say that you should expect suffering. You should only avoid it, which you can do with a sizable gift to their ministry. Instead uh, of hearing that we have to suffer in order to follow in the steps of Christ, we hear that Christ suffered and died so that we can have an easy life. This is not the message of the Bible. This is not the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is about making the gospel known to people through word and by example. I want to point you to Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 24. Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Love and faith are misconstrued in the prosperity gospel. Let me give you an example of what I mean. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. In this passage, the Macedonians are being held up as a, a model of how to live the Christian life. And here's how they modeled the Christian life. Uh, the, the grace of God came upon them. Uh, they were in extreme poverty at the time. And after the grace of God came upon them, they were still in extreme poverty. Nevertheless, it was out of their poverty that they demonstrated not only generosity, but they did it with extreme joy, even while they were being afflicted. And so you had the Macedonians becoming Christians. While they're still in the state of poverty, they gave generously, very generously. If there was ever an occasion for Paul to share the prosperity gospel with people who needed to hear it, this was it. Why did he not go to the Macedonians and say, if you will just sow a seed offering, if you would sow $100, God will give you 1000 in return. And then they would have even more money to give to Paul's ministry. That didn't happen. But there's a point in, in this, and, and the point I want to make is, is this, is that it was while the Macedonians were overflowing with joy, they were in a state of poverty, uh, not as a result of having been blessed by a lot of money. For them, Christ was everything. They had Christ. He was enough. He was enough for their lives to overflow with joy. 
In verse 8, uh, Paul says that this is proof of genuine love. And there's a point I want to make here. If we were to preach the prosperity gospel, you know, that God wants to make you healthy and wealthy, then we're going to miss out on the opportunity to demonstrate love like that, like what we see in Scripture. Loving in spite of affliction, loving in spite of poverty. How do you do that? It's because your joy is grounded in something other than the removal of affliction or the removal of poverty. Joy like that is grounded in the grace of God. So let me conclude. In uh, order to uh, address this fake good news, we have to begin with teaching the biblical gospel. People need to hear about sin as God speaks about it in the Bible. Do you know that according to scripture, the biggest problem we have is not that we are sick or that we don't have enough money or that circumstances are not what we would like for them to be in order to enjoy the good life. The biggest problem we have is sin. For this cause, uh, Christ came into the world. As John the Baptist pointed out, behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. This is the message of the gospel. God became man. He became one of us. He lived the life that we should have lived. He lived a perfect life. He died the death that we should have died so that we may inherit the righteousness that is due him that is transferred to us, to our account. It's good for us to know that God isn't some genie just waiting for us to rub the magic lamp so he can come out and prosper us, but that he is a holy being who is offended by sin. There is a need for people to hear about the love of God that causes him to give his son to pay the price for hell-deserving sinners by dying on the cross. And there is a great need for preachers to deal with such subjects as sin, redemption, atonement, regeneration, conversion, sanctification, and glorification. As men and women look into the light of the gospel sun, they will despise the miserable candles being held out to them by the prosperity teachers. As they are satisfied with real food, they will discern the worthlessness of the spiritual cotton candy that prosperity teachers are offering them. These false teachers promise them much, but they deliver nothing that can truly satisfy the soul. Christ and Christ alone can satisfy what you truly yearn for. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we consider the gospel in the current context of where we live in this country and indeed uh, around the world, we are aware 
uh, that there are popular, uh, attractive messages that appeal to the masses, uh, hope for deliverance from sickness or from poverty. And while we certainly pray for all who are afflicted by either or both, we are especially made aware of the need to realize that our greatest need is not for health or for wealth. Our greatest need is for a redeemer, for a savior, for someone to deliver us from the power and the penalty of sin, which you did for us. You came as our representative to live the perfect life and to die the death that we should have died. In the process, pouring out your life with pain and suffering so that we might have deliverance from the power and the penalty of sin. Hallelujah. What a Savior who has come to save his people from their sins. Through Christ we pray. Amen.